Hello, and welcome to History Soundbites, a podcast in which historians present their current research and leave us all feeling smarter and more informed for their efforts. Today's podcast features Karen Webb with a special Constitution Day 2018 presentation. Sit back and enjoy. Today we have Karen Webb joining us for Constitution Day 2018. She will be discussing evolving compromises concerning the United States Constitution. Karen, welcome. Hello there. Um, What I like to do is talk about the establishment and our Constitution and the importance in understanding that our Constitution is based on compromises. As we've evolved as a young nation, it has taken a lot for us to develop our Constitution and for it to be a breathing, living document with the changes that have been encompassing with the development of all technologies and all of these nice things. So in order to kind of understand the Constitution, I'd like to go in and start with the origins of government. When you think about the origins of government, you have to think about, is government a natural phenomenon? Back in the day with Aristotle, you may think they he actually did think about that. He thought it was natural because he believed in the family unit. So it was kind of a natural progression. But then you have to think about, Is it an artificial creation of humankind? Over time, the survival of the fittest. And you think about the animal kingdom. When it developed, of course, the bigger the animals, the more you had power over it. So, survival of the fittest. And when you think about, as the government has evolved, so are we a natural phenomenon or are we an artificial creation? Because a lot of our government is based on the communal establishment. What we have found in the past is many times people think about it from a standpoint that it's both. Believe it or not, it is both. Because as it has evolved, we have to consider the idea about the emergence of a social contract. In order to develop the communal environment, even whether it was religious-based or whether it was formal government type with like the King of England, uh, you have to think about how is the government, who makes the rules, who's going to decide. If you think about the early times where we didn't have established states, who owned property? Whose was it? Who decided what? who got what? And that's where we kind of see the emergence of the social contract theory and the idea of limited government. When we think about the social contract theorist, we have to kind of imagine back starting early with Nicholas of Acusa and his idea about the theory of consent. With the theory of consent, he actually believed, being a church philosopher and a writer, he believed in the state of nature and he believed in the family unit. And he is one of the original theorists that came up with the concept of consent, the theory of consent. Because back in the 1400s, and his time frame was 1401 to 1464, we didn't have established governments per se. Basically, we had units. You had family units, and you had communal units. With his idea, what he tried to establish was the fact that everybody wanted to be governed. You were you were consenting to give away your individual freedoms. So with his idea, 
we see it evolving. And when you get in to see Thomas Hobbes, you look at the idea, and he went a little step farther than Nicholas Acosa because he kind of looked at it like a state of nature. What is a state of nature? Do any of us really understand what it would be like? And if you think about it, can you think about of a time when there has been no government? What was it like during the animal age when the dinosaurs were on the earth or different things like that? It was a state of nature. There were no rules. I find it really fascinating that you can trace this idea of the social contract back to the 1400s because because for a lot of these ideas we tend about the social contract or about the role of government especially the role of modern government we tend to think about those as enlightenment ideas which comes you know a few centuries later than the 1400s and even you know that idea about trying to see government and people in those connections as part of part of a natural law is comes from that idea of the scientific revolution that we can find specific laws that govern the world and then applying those specific laws and natural laws to to people within the enlightenment so i find that really interesting that you you've traced it back to the 1400s even earlier than the enlightenment it is a fascinating thing when you stop and take a look at it, but you have to understand, of course, there were no Americas at the time. But back in Europe, they definitely had the idea that you had to agree to be governed. That was the theory of consent. But then again, how do you establish who is going to be in charge? And see, that's where they were having a lot of conflicts. And if you were bigger, you know, you would have that idea that, you would rule, or you would make the decision on who was going to rule. And it all evolves, but like I said, a century later, in the 1500s, Thomas Hobbes is a really interesting social contract theorist, simply because he goes on when he's explaining it, and he goes farther with the theory of consent, in that he brings in who is going to govern. He believes in the absolute monarch. Of course, he was a churchman also. And uh, he was different because he lived to be very old. He was about 90 when he died. He lived from 1588 to 1679, which in that time period was rare, very rare. And his idea was that without government, without the king, we would have no government. There would be basically life would be brutish and warlike. You know, there would be no law and order. And he believed in law and order. And it's interesting, especially if you get a chance to read his book, Leviathan. It is a very tedious read, but it is a good read because it kind of tells you or it shows you the state of nature and how it is that the king was going to protect everybody. He was going to make sure there was law and order. And that, again... It evolves from there and how it continues to grow. But he actually, as a church person, he wanted to protect the king. And that's why he was, really did push that the king was law and order. There could be no disagreement with it. The king knew the best. But within that time frame, we have John Locke who came into play. And he, as a social contract theorist, he kind of, agreed with law, uh, Thomas Hobbes in one way, but then again, he took it even a step farther. And yes, he agreed everybody wanted to be governed. 
they wanted law and order. But he felt that unlike the state of nature that Thomas Hobbes believed in, British and warlike, he believed people would be tranquil and they would want to be governed in limit. They would not want to give all of their independent freedom away. Thomas Hobbes believed you had to give your whole heart to the king. Locke said, no, you, you can do, you know, limited government. You don't take all of your individual freedoms and give them away. You have to keep some to make sure that the government will not abuse their power. And this is where we see the trusteeship theory of government. Based on the early days in England, we saw that a lot of the concepts that we use today in our Constitution came from the ideas of Great Britain and England. And basically, starting with the use agreement back in England with the king, you would see a lot of landowners that wanted to, of course, try to get to heaven. So they thought if they donated their land to the monks, they had a better chance of getting to heaven. And so when they did that, the monks, of course, had their religious belief of poverty. So they couldn't accept land because land was property. So then they came up with an idea to go into a trust agreement, whereas in order for them to use their ideas, they would go into what they called the trust agreement. Well, that trust agreement, which we use today many times, is just like the Constitution because we trust the government is going to take care of us, and especially today. But what had happened with the landowners, what they would do is they would go to a lawyer and put the land in the lawyer's name. And that created the concept where the lawyers would let the monks use the land to grow crops and things and have their temples, but it wouldn't be in the monks' name. So they got to keep their role of poverty, and they had came up with the trust agreement, which we base our Constitution on. So Locke's idea was that we would limit that trust agreement. That's where you come up with the concept of the trusteeship theory of limited government. Now, when, they, when we decided to write the Declaration of Independence, and we're going a little step farther, Thomas Jefferson, looking at Locke's ideas, kind of, you know, looked at it, and as he was writing that declaration, he liked that concept of independence with limited government. So here we go again with kind of compromising how do we want to be governed. And this is what the social contract theorists have been developing in evolving the process for us to be governed. So now we have Thomas Jefferson as a social contract theorist, and he's looking at it, but he's focusing on limiting our government. And basically, they used that Declaration of Independence to justify the American Revolution. And that justification was basically because, and we all know our history, that we were looking to get our independence from Great Britain. And England, we did not want them telling us how to govern the colonies. So, of course, we're at that stage. Now, as they wrote that declaration, they were looking at how it was we were going to develop and run our government, run this country without the leadership of England, because the parliamentary 
ways of England we didn't want here. We wanted to be our own nation. We were looking for our independence. So now we've got Thomas Jefferson and we've got the Founding Fathers trying to create a document that could bring all of the colonies together and develop our own form of government. So we have them looking and originally the first constitution that we have draws on the concept of the Articles of Confederation. Now looking at the idea of the Articles of Confederation, we have to think about, okay, we have 13 colonies and they're all different. You have to understand a lot of the different religions in each of those colonies had different ideas of what the government should do. So with the Articles of Confederation, basically you see the idea that each one of the colonies could establish their own government. So we have all these 13 different ways of doing it. Well, first of all, it had a very weak national government because each one of the colonies, of course, had their own set of rules. And basically, as the nation at the time, remember, we just justified the American Revolution, we got our independence. Well, there was no way to pay for an army, a national army. You know, there was no way to do that because each one of those colonies had their own set of rules for regulating their commerce, for making money. Can you imagine if each one of those had had their own money? I mean, we would just, it was up in the air. And the Articles of Confederation, there was a weak form of national government, no power to collect taxes, to pay for an army, a national army, that we had just used the different colonies' armies to fight the revolution, no power to regulate commerce. And the last uh, conflict that, that we had with the Artis Articles of Confederation dealt with the idea that it would take all 13 of those colonies to make a decision whether to amend those Articles of Confederation. So here again, we've got compromises. We've got the Constitutional Convention, and we're trying to figure out how are we going to have a nation? How are we going to develop the ideas to run this nation? Yeah, and so one of the things that I always talk about in my when I teach survey level classes or early U.S. classes is that the, the colonists, when they were fighting the revolution, they had this ideal in mind that had come from the social contract theory of Locke and basically the glorious revolution back in the 1680s um, in England had kind of set the precedent for creating a new style of government where the king is going to abide by certain constitutional principles, constitutional rights, they didn't call them constitutional rights, they created something called a Bill of Rights, where they actually outlined for the first time in human history, for, as far as I know, a certain, certain rights that all Englishmen are entitled to. And so in the colonies, the colonists welcomed that back in the 1690s, uh, because that's what they had wanted. They didn't like the arbitrary rule of a king and all of that. So they liked the idea of having something written down, and they liked the, the specific rights that were outlined in the Bill of Rights. Over time, in England, they kind of, the, you know, the British government kind of evolved differently away from that old conception of the Bill of Rights. But in the colonies, we really held on to that idea of the Bill of Rights strongly. We, they really liked that. And so the American Revolution was fought because a lot of American colonists kind of phrased it as we are fighting for the Bill of Rights that the British government has forsaken. 
And the British government, you know, is kind of saying, well, that's that's a quaint document, that's nice, but that's not the way the real world works. And so, after the after the revolutionaries win, they went about creating a government based on that English Bill of Rights. Unfortunately, it turned out to be kind of a disaster. <laughs> so. It really did. And, you know, prime example was George Washington trying to keep his army together to defend the 13 colonies. and But they had no way to pay them. And that was one of the biggest issues with the Bill of Rights is, you know, who was going to put in and pay for these, the army. And like uh, New York and Virginia, they had more uh, personnel in their armies than some of the other states. So were they going to have to pay for more? You know, that's where they kept having issues. And so our very first Constitution, the Articles of Confederation, didn't last. Unfortunately, during the Constitutional Convention, we came up with the idea, we just really need to start over. We need to establish a national government. And this is where we get into compromises. Because without those Bill of Rights, there are not really individual rights because you have to understand your Constitution. First of all, it is the supreme law of the land. It tells the government what it can and cannot do. But it also sets up the structure of the national government. It is not for individual rights when it was originally written in 1787. Now, a lot of the issues that uh, came into play dealing with the uh, writing of the Constitution was, as you know, in the Articles of Confederation, you had to have unanimous consent to make changes. Well, there was Rhode Island who decided, no, we don't want to change it. We're little. And if you establish a national government, we're going to have some issues. So we had some ratification problems. And basically, what the ideas that were brought up at the Constitutional Convention was, there was too much power at the national level. We did not want, like, a king. We did not want just one person running the country. We didn't want to give the national government too much power. The convention itself was held in secret. And that was an issue because they didn't let everybody know, even today, one of our biggest concerns is transparency in the government. So, again, today we are still having the same issues they had back in 1787. Also, it was considered an illegitimate document because of the unanimous consent that was established in the Articles of Confederation. They considered this new constitution they had written as an illegitimate document. It wasn't real because it didn't have unanimous consent. Rhode Island wasn't there. And of course, the last ratification issue that was addressed was the Bill of Rights. There were no Bill of Rights. And that's what they really wanted when it came to the Constitution. Yeah, so. and so basically at this point when they've created this new Constitution, from the perspective of a lot of the Founding Fathers generation, the people that had fought through the Revolutionary War, this new document is in some ways a complete betrayal of what they fought the revolution for. 
which is going to set the stage for you know, the the people that are going to be opposed to ratifying the Constitution and all that. But there was this sense that the, the Articles of Confederation, that's what we were fighting for. If it didn't work, then, well, that's then we need to fine-tune the Articles of Confederation. The idea that we're going to throw the Articles of Confederation right out the window and we're going to replace it with this new document, well, that seems like a complete betrayal. And so that's one of the reasons that it always seemed to me is one of the reasons why the Constitution was such a a controversial document at the time was because they were seemingly discarding the things that they had been fighting for. Yes, and again, we have compromise coming into play. And one of the key people involved in these compromises, one of the biggest states involved in trying to get this new constitution passed dealt with Virginia. Well, Virginia wanted the Bill of Rights. They wanted individual protections against the big national government. Well, in Virginia... They took a look, and a key player was James Madison. James Madison, he looked at the idea about the Bill of Rights, and he really wanted the Bill of Rights. But they didn't want to overwhelm too much detail in the Constitution, because you have to remember, it tells the government what it can do. And they wanted to keep the trusteeship theory of government with limited government. So James Madison had made an agreement with the legislature in Virginia, and he told them, he said, you know, we've set up these new rules in the Constitution. You have Article One, the legislative body, Article Two, the executive, Article Three, the judiciary. He says, if you ratify this Constitution, I will run for a position in the House of Representatives, and I will initiate adding the Bill of Rights. Well, at the time, of course, I think there were, well, there's debate on whether there was 14 or 16, um, but eventually we come to find out, we agreed 10 of them were put in, what we call the Bill of Rights. And uh, so he helped, and basically he got the Bill of Rights added to the original Constitution of 1787, which addressed the issues of no Bill of Rights protection. But what a lot of people do not understand, and this is where we have a lot of compromise, when this Constitution was written and the Bill of Rights added, those were protections against the national government. Well, at this point, that did not mean you had protections against your different state governments. Now we have another issue. Because we know the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. That is what is in the Constitution. Article 6, Paragraph 2, the Supremacy Clause, states the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. Well, the concept of shared authority with federalism brings into play, when you look at the Tenth Amendment, it gives reserve powers to each of the states. So now we've got this new form of government we have come up with called federalism. Well, those Bill of Rights that are applied, it has taken time for those to be applied to the states. And it was through the Ninth Amendment, the Enumeration Clause, that that applied to the states. And through the process of cases being brought before the Supreme Court, this is where the nationalization of the Bill of Rights, or what, what I like to call the incorporation of the Bill of Rights to be applied to the state, would give you those extra protections. So now the, your 
Fourth Amendment protection against unreasonable search and seizure. Now it has applied, well, through the 1960s, you have that right through the incorporation of the Fourth Amendment to be applied to the states. And that's how the Constitution is a compromise, how it is evolving. It keeps, you know, growing as we grow because when they wrote that Constitution, they had no idea that we were going to be flying in airplanes, that we would be talking on cell phones, that we would be doing recordings on laptops. And this is what, how much compromise do we want the government to have? Which brings us to different current events currently that have come to play because we've also got elections coming up. Uh, a lot of the concepts that we're dealing with, uh, current events that look at compromises, social justice. This is huge right now. A lot of brutality that we're seeing in uh, with police. Where are your Bill of Rights? Where is the Constitution at this point? What about political unity? Do we have it? You know, right now we're being torn apart from different directions. Well, what does the Constitution say about that? Does it say anything about it? Well, we know Article 1 is the legislative body, okay? We're the people. We take care of it. This is our limited government here. Diversity, equal protection, the 14th Amendment. you got to understand, you know, back in the day, and the 14th Amendment is a Civil War Amendment. So it wasn't until after the Civil War that that got added to the Constitution. The election influence. Now, with all the new technology that we're dealing with, how much of the election influence do we have? I think you make a really important point about, you know, the evolution and change and what the Constitution is intended to do. And even current debates about, you know, original intent versus evolution. I mean, even Thomas Jefferson has that fantastic quote, and I'm not going to remember the whole thing, so I'm not going to (laughs) to even try to Mm -hmm. quote it. But talking about, you know, he doesn't advocate for frequent changes, but he understands that that times change, the way that people understand the world changes. So governments and laws have to change too. And one of the key parts, and this part I think I do remember of that quote, is something about um, we wouldn't expect a man to still wear the same coat which fitted him as a boy. So, you know, as civilizations change, as people's understanding of the world changes, governments and people also need to adapt. You know, and this this coming from a, a slave owner who probably couldn't foresee or maybe did foresee the end of, of that institution. I think it's really important to note that even a lot of the founding fathers knew that what was required for the time wouldn't be required for every time. And so we have an amendment system built in and we have this ability to create laws that adjust for the times. And I think that's an important thing to remember when we start going back to discussions about um, intention and the founding fathers uh, and holding those, you know, the words up as very strict, we very strictly interpret what they said and we interpret what they intended, that that's important to keep in mind that even even when they're saying these these truths that we hold up as self-evident, right, that there was this idea that there needs to be something written in about flexibility and change and understanding that the times will change. Because if we didn't understand that, we would still have slavery. Women wouldn't be able to vote. We wouldn't have been able to deconstruct uh, a lot of the institutions within our nation that hold different populations down, whether they be Catholics or whether they be African-Americans, um, whether they be women. So this hearkening back to the idea that we need to 
to look at the original intent. And it's actually an interpretation of what we think their words mean when we talk about original intent, right? It's, we're always interpreting through, through a lens of where we are now. So I think you've raised a lot of really great points about that. And then the Constitution itself also has provisions written within it to change it. I mean, the Founding Fathers, they never really believed this was going to be the final document. They, this is the starting point. And then they put in the amendment process. Um, and back in the, you know, the 1790s, 1780s, 1790s, it, it was easier to, to amend the Constitution because it was just such a smaller group of, a smaller number of states would have to approve any changes to the, to the, uh, doc, to the document. The number of senators and congressmen was smaller. So it was, at the time, believed, they believed anyway, that this is a fairly easy thing to change. And so then since there's an actual amendment process built into it, there's the expectation that the document's going to change. It's really in our modern era where we have, you know, 300 million people spread across 50 different states that it suddenly becomes a lot more difficult to change this thing. And so we kind of have the impression now that the Constitution is impossible to change because politically speaking, it's very, very difficult. But back in those days, it was a lot easier to change. And so when people like Jefferson are talking about, you know, <laughs> I forget the exact quote too, but something about, you know, every now and then we need to water the forest with the blood of tyrants or something and reshape the government and all of that, they built that kind of safety valve into the Constitution as an amendment process so that they could try to make sure that would happen, but in a productive, peaceful, legal process. And so I think that's one of the things that's really cool about this particular document. Well, and you also know a very important point that they couldn't foresee everything. Um, <laughs> what they definitely couldn't foresee is the prevalence of social media. So we no longer have a well-educated core group of politicians who have training in thinking about legal documents or thinking about um, enlightenment ideas and rights and what's good for the country. You now have millions of people who are weighing in via Twitter or creating blogs or attacking facts like Infowars, you know, who are We've democratized, for, to some extent, social media has democratized voice, and it's allowed more voices to be heard, which is important in a democracy. But what does that do when those voices are uninformed and when they're not actually connecting to larger ideals of the nation, but they're very selfish or they're misinforming intentionally or even unintentionally because they're not, they haven't taken the time to educate themselves or even to think about what the larger ramifications are? That is a lot of the principle behind the Constitution is a bundle of compromises. So we as a society really do need to think about what kind of compromises do we need to develop to keep it growing and evolving. Yeah, and that makes sense because, I mean, in order to keep this Constitution relevant, yeah, we do have to compromise. And that's where you, I mean, you've got the, uh, what is it, the supermajority in both houses of Congress. You've got to get three quarters of the states to approve it. So you have to create something that appeals to a broad base of people, and it does have to be compromised. It's not one of the other things, kind of the flip side of the thing I was talking about before, where it's, it was easier to change it back then than it is now. The flip side of that, though, is that you can't do it on a whim. So it's not so easy that anybody can do it. So if you get one particular mob in power, as a lot of the Founding Fathers would have seen it, they would have called it a mob. If one mob gets into power, they're not going to very easily be able to change the document to suit them and to exclude their political enemies from power or anything. You do have to create compromises. And like you were saying, even back during the original convention, there's all the constant, there's all the compromises over, you know, the, there's the great compromise where you've got the decision to do a bicameral legislature where one is based on population, one is based on, you know, two votes per state. 
So there is a long history of compromise, and it's kind of built in that you have to compromise in order to make this thing function. And everybody has to agree that this thing does function. That's one of the core tenets of American government is that we all abide by the decision of our representatives or by the decision of a vote. We all agree to abide by it because if we don't, then there's just going to be anarchy. So the whole system is built on is built on compromise. And so I, I think that's a great kind of theme to use throughout this this whole discussion. Definitely. It cuts to, I mean, I think one of the key terms that you just used there is mob. So mob mentality. And at the, the risk of oversimplifying history, I mean, we only need to look at some of the key distinctions between the American Revolution and the French Revolution to see how those forces play out, right? So, you know, I wanted to thank you, Karen. This was a great conversation because not only does it demonstrate the continuing relevance of a, a document that's centuries old, but that continues to to guide our principles in this country. And it continues to be debatable. Um, you know, people continue to debate about the intentions or, or the impact and, and talk about how it can be changed or what shouldn't be changed. But this presentation itself draws on a long history of that predates the U.S. about ideas of the social contract and where that comes from and how we evolve as a people and how ideas evolve. And sometimes ideas, when we talk about evolution, that doesn't always connect to that modernist assumption that everything continues to get better all the time, right? There are backslides, there are shifts that occur. It doesn't always mean continuous improvement for everyone or even for certain certain groups within within the country. But it is a great conversation about where the origins of these ideas come from. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't the conversation and the debates about how to implement this were not straightforward and cut and dry. This wasn't all of our founding fathers got together. They all had the same ideas and they created this document that was perfect and they never intended it to be perfect. And I think that's something that's really important for all of us to understand, especially in this day and age, when we look about the the political environment and we look at current debates and we look about or look at, you know, what we might call populist or mob sentiment weighing in on things that maybe they haven't taken the time to inform themselves about. And even politicians today, you know, where they come from and their background and training. So I think you've raised a lot of really important points that are going to spark debate, not only now, but for the foreseeable future, because they tap into what is currently happening. Oh, especially now, because it can grow. And it's going to change. There, change is inevitable. So, you know, but we have to be willing as a society to look at it. And yeah, we may not agree with it to start with, but it will evolve to a point it may benefit us. So let's take a look, stand back and look and say, hey, okay, well, I disagree with it now, but it's going to change. So let's see what we can do with it. Great. So thank, Karen, thank you so much for this enlightening conversation and presentation. Rob, thank you for joining in with some great questions and information from your end as well. This was, I think this was a great way to reflect on the history of the Constitution, but also introduce some important points as we celebrate Constitution Day 2018 and really think about what the Constitution continues to mean and where we're moving as a nation. Thank you very much, both of you. Thank you. You're welcome. Have a good day. You too.